Welcome to another edition of our Six Questions podcast. I'm Trent England for Save Our States. Very glad to be joined by Adam White, who is, uh, before we, we started recording, I was just sort of trying to figure out where in the George Mason uh, University Law School building he is, because um, you know, many, many years ago, uh, I used to wander around there with all my books and things. But Adam, really, really glad to have you on the program. I, I should say you are the senior a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and also the co-director of George Mason University's C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Adam, welcome. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. And yeah, as you can see uh, here in my office at George Mason, I'm an easy guy to find. <laughs> That's right. You've got a you got one of those fishbowl offices up uh, what on the fourth, I guess. Yep. So uh uh, first, first question: Something that obviously is near and dear to Save Our States. Uh, it seems like people are identifying more than in in recent memory. I think with their states, rather than with the, the the federal the federal government, or you know, sort of in addition to being American, you you see people at least in places like like Texas, but also Florida and South Dakota. Um, really focusing in on what that means and arguing that their state is, you know, the best at this or that or, or whatever. Uh, I think COVID sort of brought some of that home. Do you think we're rediscover rediscovering federalism? Is this a positive thing? Is it negative in the sense that maybe it plays into divides and you see people, you know, some in the media are talking about we're going to, the country's going to break apart because of all of this. And, you know, certainly the Dobbs case, I think now is feeding into all this. Adam, what do you think? Are we seeing a re revival of federalism? Well, we sure seem to be. And, and as you suggest, this can be a good thing and a bad thing, usually a little of both. Uh, it's good that we identify with our states, uh, that we take seriously the importance of our state government, to say nothing of, of local communities and, and smaller communities as well. Our states are important. And to the extent that uh, decisions from the Supreme Court redirect uh, issues back to the states when they properly belong in the states. It's a good thing. In, in fact, in the aftermath of Dobbs, you saw, you see news reports about uh, uh, national organizations, progressive organizations, funneling more money and more energy back into the states. Uh, that's a good thing when these issues rightly belong to the states. Uh, but of course, the, the, the thing about American federalism is that the states are important and so is the federal government, right? It's good for us to identify with our states. It's also good for us to be Americans uh, and to recognize the, the proper allocation of responsibility between those two levels of government. And then of course, uh, responsibilities of non-governmental actors. What worries me about the present moment uh, is that yes, people are identifying with states, uh, but oftentimes we identify with sort of blocks of states or communities of states um, almost, uh, I wouldn't say at war with one another, but certainly in conflict with one another. The whole red-blue divide does worry me, especially when people see the states as instrumentalities of federal power, right, as, 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 as federal policymaking. Uh, and so it'd be, it's one thing to have 50 states all serving as laboratories of democracy. It's another thing when we see our state as one of a block of states that's sort of trying to, to, to set national policy from the states. Uh, that's a worrisome thing. And I think we always need to be on guard against that. So, Adam, you are the co-director of the Seaboyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we, we 
it, it's easy for us to who work in this all the time to throw around ideas like federalism, the administrative state. Uh, explain to people what what is the administrative state? What does that mean? I mean, that's not a phrase found in the Constitution or even referenced, I think, in a lot of civics classes. Uh, so why why is that important? What what is it all about? Well, thanks again for mentioning the center. Uh, my co-director here is Professor Jennifer Mascott, uh, who who writes a lot on the separation of powers uh, and and on the the nature of administration. The administrative state means a few different things. Uh, sometimes I tell people when they ask what's the administrative state, I say, well, look out the window here in Washington D.C. and and all those sort of anonymous-looking, bland federal buildings—not the really beautiful ones, but the the more mundane ones. That's kind of the administrative state. In a way, it's the sum total of all of these agencies that play a significant role in government. But I think the more important way to think about this, uh, this term administrative state is a, a state, a, a nation, uh, whose center of gravity in terms of lawmaking is the administrative agencies, right? It's not Congress, it's not the courts, it's not, uh, it's not even the presidency, uh, but it is these administrative agencies, which day after day and year after year tend to be the center of gravity for policymaking, tend to be the center of political energy, uh, both the, in the work they do and the work that people do around these agencies. Uh, the, again, maybe the, the best way of putting it is the center of gravity of our government is administration. And that's not a good thing. Now, I want to be very clear here. Administration is crucially important. And in fact, in The Federalist, Hamilton says not once but twice um, that the true test of a constitution is its tendency and aptitude to produce good administration. And, and he meant first and foremost, you know, the execution of good laws, but he made clear that administration in its broadest sense includes work of the courts and work of Congress. Um, so administration is crucial, but it, the administrative state is slightly different. And I would love to see our constitutional institutions sort of recalibrate back towards the Hamiltonian sense of administration, not the, the modern Wilsonian sense of an administrative state. Yeah, I think it is. I think Hamilton ends that statement saying, uh, maybe quoting somebody else, "That which is administered best is best." Is that? It is. It is. Um, I'm going to botch the quote, but he quotes a poet. Uh, the line was, uh, "Let of forms of government let fools contest, but that which is administered best is best." Something like that. And yeah, he says, no, Did which I is a great. What, but hold what on, the though. themes? But, but hold on, oh, he, he, he yeah. cites the poem, um, but he says, he says, he tees it up by saying that, you know, this is sort of a cynical way of looking at it. So he distances himself slightly from the yeah. quote, but then he says, he moves on to the, to the point I made, which is, but to be very clear here, administration really is the true test of government. And what he yeah. meant by that is that at the end of the day, uh, Americans would feel the effects of government not through sort of legislation, right, which is sort of inherently abstract, but ultimately they'd feel the effects of how legislation is administered, uh, which is not to say that administration should supersede legislation, but that ultimately we'd feel the impacts to administration. And then through that, then Americans' trust in government would really be formed by the way that good laws are enforced and not just by sort of the abstractions of legislation. I think it's a deep, deep insight that gets yeah. real short shrift today. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think you know Hamilton lived at a time when people were conscious that they were 
building something new. And so it was very easy for the armchair thinkers to, uh, to sort of, you know, build their castles in the air as to what a government might be like. And, you know, a theme of this podcast, I think, is, you know, being uh, giving men like Hamilton and Madison their due when they were very practical about how government actually works and trying to bring people like Thomas Jefferson back down to earth and say, you know, look, you, it, it's fun to think about all these different things. And, you know, maybe we should refound our state every 19 years and rewrite everything and, and do all this. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always, I always think back to when the, the first time I think when, when I was in probably middle school, I heard someone say, well, you know, socialism, uh, socialism is a great system in, in theory. Um, <laughs> uh, it just doesn't work in practice. I thought, well, you know, if, if your if your theory doesn't include human nature, it's a pretty stupid theory. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there is there is a real sort of Burkean's uh, sort of undertone to this aspect of Hamilton's thought. And I, yeah. I just add, not to belabor the point, but a lot of a, a lot of people, a lot of your, your viewers, your listeners, you know, they're familiar with Madison's suggestion in Federalist Forty Nine, really responding to Jefferson, as you mentioned a moment ago that uh, in the long run, we do want to build some veneration for our constitutional institutions, and that requires some stability. And this point that Hamilton makes about administration, I think is, is, is very much sort of a piece with Madison's thinking, um, that, that ultimately, maybe not veneration, but res- you need the respect of the people. And that can only be attained, um, not through the abstraction of legislation, which is the important first step, but then ultimately seeing good legislation administered effectively. Uh, because if the administration falls short, people will lose faith in government. And we see that a lot today. People have very low opinions of the federal government. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we spend in Washington a lot of time arguing about legislation, arguing about regulations. They get enacted, they get promulgated. Um, but we don't see a material improvement in people's lives over the long term. Because at the end of the day, each new administration comes in wielding these same broad powers that have been delegated to it by Congress. And they treat administration kind of like an Etch-a-Sketch. I hope that's not a dated reference, but you know, you draw on the Etch-a-Sketch and you shake it up and it's clean. And each new administration does that. And Hamilton worried about this. He, he, he said that it would be it would be a, he described a ruinous mutability of government through bad, erratic administration. Sorry to belabor the point, but you've kind of got me on my, uh, on my hobby horse now. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's terrific. I do want to pivot here with question three, which is, you know, we've been talking about front of the process, constitution and legislation, and then working our way to administration. I want to talk about the back end of the process, which is the courts. Uh, you were on the President's Commission for the Supreme Court of the United States. Obviously, you've been watching what the court has done, uh, you know, really monumental Supreme Court term. Uh, where do you think, you know, looking at the commission, looking at this last term, uh, where do you think the Supreme Court is? Some people are saying, you know, it's it's going to be swinging back toward legitimacy. Obviously, you've got people saying it's it's lost all of its legitimacy you know, much of this is just result-oriented uh, punditry. But Adam, you know, you're you're a, a closer court watcher than most. What what do you think is happening with the Supreme Court? I certainly reject that last sort of criticism that you uh, that you cited. People who are attacking the court's legitimacy, and we're seeing that attack more and more in recent years. Um, 
I, I think that that line of attack right now says more about the critics than about the court. Uh, and and I, I really reject any kind of notion of judicial legitimacy that acts like a heckler's veto, right? That if I don't like the court's decisions, even if I think the court, you know, in a thought, it's not just reactionary criticism, but, you know, just because I, I have sort of a thoughtful and well-grounded criticism of individual decisions uh, to jump to the conclusion that the court is illegitimate uh, or that the court is results oriented. I, I think that's a, that's the fault of the critic, not of the court. The court's not beyond criticism. Lord knows I've had plenty of criticism for the court myself, and I, I will, I'm sure, for years to come. Um, but none of it reasonably reaches the level of sort of questions of legitimacy. Here's how I would tend to think of the court at this current moment. This is a generational turning point with the arrival of these new justices and their shift towards uh, a much more originalist and textualist approach to the Constitution. First, we're going to see very, very interesting debates. I mean, obviously, among right and left but really interesting debates among the court's conservatives um, because there are six conservatives on the court right now, but they're very, very different. No two of them are identical. And so you see different approaches to stare decisis, different sort of senses of what are the background principles or the foundational principles that undergird the constitution's words and how should judges give effect to those principles, even if they aren't explicitly spelled out in the constitution. It's the difference between say, uh, Randy Barnett's uh, judicial mm-hmm. engagement, uh, Hadley Arcus's natural law, Adrian Vermeule's common good constitutionalism, and, and other more Burkean strains of, of, of conservative constitutionalism. So those will be very interesting debates that will play out in terms of how judges read the law, um, how much deference they give to precedent, and, and so on. Within I've got to ask you a yeah, please, I, I, of course. Brief- just to sort of a 3.5, who's who's the Burkean on the court? I I, I mean, w- would you say that the chief sort of in his uh, trying to, to slow the, the change down? Or I don't know, who would you identify as the most Burkean? So about a decade ago, I wrote a piece uh, for the Weekly Standard calling Justice Alito the Burkean justice. And I'm sticking with it. He's not he's not Burke and Burkeanism means different things to different people. But what the argument I made in the Weekly Standard, and I'm now making it in a follow-up piece for a symposium we did at AEI, uh, is that Justice Alito has a unique combination of of, uh, attention to the text of laws, but also an appreciation of sort of the, the dangers of judicial overreach and judicial overconfidence. And so Justice Alito, he always begins with textualism. We saw this in the Dobbs case, but he's often... Um, among all the conservative justices, he's often the one you'll see first say, first to say, we need to tread lightly here in sort of this frontier area of law. Maybe we ought to get, create more, leave more space for communities and states to experiment first. Um, and, and he often worries about precedent. Now, people will, criticize, will say after Dobbs that he doesn't care about precedent. That's not true. He cares a lot about precedent. He disagreed with this particular precedent. Um, but I, I would still call him the Burkean justice. But Chief Justice Roberts, for whom I also have a lot of respect, I think is very, very interesting. He also takes a very inst- institutionalist view that also informs a kind of judicial restraint that he's called for, again, most recently in his concurrence uh, in the Dobbs case. Okay, uh, talking here with Adam White. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and also the co-director of George Mason University's C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, all things we've been talking about on the program. Question number four, Adam, uh, digging in a little more to the Supreme Court's recent term, 
Uh, I, I'm sure the, uh, was it the, I think it's the penultimate case, the EPA case is something that you have, uh, have looked at very closely. Did the court go far enough? Some people thought they were going to overturn this Chevron doctrine that has, has given so much deference to the administrative state, but they went a, a different direction, got the same result. Uh, Adam, your, your impressions of the, uh, the EPA case. Yeah, this was, this was, for me, one of the two most important cases of the year. And frankly, litigation around this issue really began all the way back in the Obama administration at the very end of it. So I've been waiting a long time to see how the court would grapple with this. In a nutshell, I'm not going to overlawyer this one. I don't want to alienate all your listeners. The question was how to interpret the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act gives the EPA the power to set, to, to, to set standards for the best systems of emissions uh, reduction from things like power plants and so on. Uh, the question that the EPA teed up years ago was, could they invoke that provision to sort of enforce much broader reforms of our energy system? Not just the way that say power plants operate, but the sources of fuel that they use. Um, and the Supreme Court said, no, we don't, we don't read the, the Clean Air Act as giving that much authority because even if the statute's a little ambiguous, uh, we're gonna be very wary of, of agencies suddenly discovering new, transformative, unprecedented powers in old statutes, especially when those new powers really encroach upon the states. So they didn't strike down the Clean Air Act as unconstitutional. They didn't say that the EPA can't regulate power plants. They just said, we're going to read the, the scope of the agency's power a little more narrowly, much more narrowly than the agency would have. And where you're going with this is, this doctrine of sort of skepticism and narrow constructions is called the major questions doctrine. That on the most important questions of economic policy, national policy in general, the court is gonna be skeptical of agencies' broad new assertions of unprecedented power in old statutes. Some would go further. Some would say that the real problem here is the statute itself, that it's, it doesn't really prescribe a standard for the agency to follow, and therefore it violates what we call the non-delegation doctrine, uh, the, the doctrine that, that when Congress delegates too much power to an agency, it basically gives away its constitutional legislative power. I really liked the court's decision because I think it does uphold the basic constitutional sort of structural principles of, of separating legislative from executive power. What I also like about it is, I think that the court should tread lightly when it strikes down statutes. It should always strike down statutes as a last resort, not a first resort. Give the benefit of the doubt where possible and where reasonable to upholding a statute, even if you have to construe a statute narrowly. So something like the major questions doctrine for me strikes the right balance. But I just say you know, the other big debate happening at the Supreme Court that I'm following, in addition to the big picture debates, is the future of administrative law. And there are a number of justices, including Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, who have very thoughtful critiques of modern administration and would like to see more statutes strike down, struck down as unconstitutional. And for what it's worth, Chief Justice Roberts has signed on to that basic critique from Justice Gorsuch. But when you look at the court's administrative law decisions as a whole, I see basically two groups, Thomas and Gorsuch, who I said would strike down a lot of statutes. Roberts, maybe Kavanaugh, we'll see. They often speak in very similar terms, but the upshot of their decisions tends to be less striking down of statutes and more trying to 
steady the administrative process and put some more guardrails on it. We'll see where Alito and Barrett come down on that, but it's that sort of debate among the conservative justices that I find very interesting. Yeah, that that all is, uh, you know, and, and I, I think as we talked about earlier in the in the podcast here, you know, it goes right to the heart of how government works. Uh, it, it, it did strike me when the EPA case came out, and I, I don't follow those issues you know, nearly as closely as you do, but, you know, leaving something like Chevron for the minor things, right, for the little things that you don't necessarily expect Congress to deal with, that agencies need flexibility in, um, but sort of using the major question doctrine to take that away when it comes to, to real, you know, sea changes in policy seems like it might strike a pretty good balance. It, it might. And speaking as, a, as an advocate for the major questions doctrine, here's the criticism that we need to grapple with. Uh, it really has to do with judicial power. A lot of people are worried that the major questions doctrine isn't really much of a doctrine at all. It's not really a line that you can clearly glean from the, the constitutional text. And so its critics argue that it's really a, an assertion of power by judges uh, it will be judicial micromanagement of agencies, judicial policymaking. Those really are the critiques that Justice Scalia and others had 40 years ago when they started calling for what became Chevron deference. So it's a very difficult balance. And, and speaking as somebody who is worried who, uh, in general about courts micromanaging agencies, these are really serious critiques that I think uh, the court and lower court judges and scholars are going to have to spend a lot of time grappling with in the years ahead. Absolutely. So question number five, Adam, you know, we, we have the, the First Amendment that protects our freedom of speech against the government and other kinds of protections that we've alluded to talking about our, our constitutional structure. But we also see the use of corporate power that is, you know, at, at least nominally outside of government, but oftentimes very enmeshed with it. Uh, that does seem to be infringing on people's ability to speak freely, to, uh, you know, pursue their own, uh, you know, political ideas. Are, are you concerned about that? Do you think that the line between the state and, uh, you know, at, at least some of our biggest businesses and, and tech businesses has eroded in a way that, that threatens some of these constitutional protections? Yeah, I worry in a couple of ways. First one is, uh, okay, starting with the administrative state, listen, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So let me just start with administration. Um, when agencies have such broad power and discretion, a lot of enforcement discretion and a lot of soft powers, ways to cajole uh, the private sector uh, without outright regulating them, then there's a real danger that you'll get either uh, agencies outsourcing regulatory power to the private sector, or you get sort of a passive aggressive administrative state where agencies really nudge and cajole uh, companies to, 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 to follow a new federal policy in ways that are, are, are much more nebulous and much less accountable. So I worry about that. The second thing I worry about, and this really gets back to the mid 19th century, sort of the dawn of the original Republican party, um, there is sort of longstanding concern about certain sectors of the economy, natural monopolies, common carriers, public accommodations, that they begin to wield something of a quasi-public power. I mean, when you say quasi, I mean, it means not, right? I mean, it, it signals that it's not actually government power, 
but its effects are very similar to it. The power is very similar. Now, they're still private companies, and so I'm wary of the government sort of coming in and regulating them. But I do understand that for practical purposes, it does feel a lot like regulation from the private sector. I think it's too soon uh, for, for the government really to jump in and, and sort of try to regulate uh, private companies, uh, say, as common carriers. There's a lot of talk about the tech companies. I think it's too soon. But I think it's something we're going to have to grapple with in a way that we haven't really since the, the mid and late 19th century, when we were seeing this arise uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, with things like the, the 14th Amendment and the original Civil Rights Acts, think about how best to regulate public accommodations uh, that were not governmental, but were very much enforcing a, a, a non-governmental policy of racial discrimination and racial oppression uh, in the South. And I think once again, we'll have to think about companies somewhat in those terms. But, you know, as an aspiring Burkean, you know, as in all things, we should be careful not to overdo it. So, Adam, our last question on the podcast is always the same. Who is your favorite founding father and uh, why? So, I guess my answer is Hamilton. Uh, I've... I think I identify most closely with his vision of what the United States would come to be. Um, his vision rightly understood, I think progressives sometimes claim him too much as their own, but his real grappling with his understanding of government, both in the abstract and in practice was unparalleled. Uh, so he's my favorite, uh, but I also, uh, I think anytime you mention Hamilton, uh, you also have to give a shout out to President Washington uh, who was not a writer, uh, so we don't quote his articles, uh, but in the way that he went about uh, becoming president, leading the country, he had the even more difficult task than Hamilton. Uh, whereas Hamilton would write about these things and somewhat enforce them, uh, Washington ultimately was responsible for administering uh, and calibrating our Hamiltonian system. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I'm a reader and I love to read. So I love to read what Hamilton wrote. Absolutely. I think it's, it's interesting that uh, to me, at least, you know, someone like Washington, um, you, you, Washington and Hamilton together were, were great, right? If Washington was on his own, if Hamilton was on his own, um, I think their, their greatness would be significantly diminished. And I think that the same is true of Adam and Adamson, uh, or excuse me, of uh, Jefferson and uh, in Madison, uh, and uh, you know, you, you see these these people who you know individually. I think some of their idiosyncrasies, or you know, maybe the little areas where they weren't quite so grounded, would have become bigger liabilities. But uh, iron sharpens iron, I guess. Yeah, and for your listeners, your viewers, if they haven't already read this book. I highly, highly recommend a new book by Professor Akhil Lamar of Yale. Uh, the book is called The Words That Made Us. It's a long book, and it's the first volume of a much longer three-volume series. But his historic account of the way we discussed the Constitution, even, say, 20 years before the Constitution was created, it's beautiful, it's fascinating. And my favorite part is his focus on Washington and Hamilton, their partnership, their work in the executive branch, and the way that they tried to relate to and lead those initial legislative processes in Congress is really an unparalleled treatment of the era. And so it's highly, highly, highly recommended. Yeah, Keel Mars, he's one of those scholars who, uh, his, his scholarly work, I appreciate a lot. And when he lapses into punditry and gets involved in politics, I don't, 
I don't quite so much uh, <laughs> appreciate it. Who among us? Who among us uh, doesn't right. sometimes slip when we lapse into, into meager punditry? That's, that's absolutely right. Adam, how can people follow your work uh, online? Well, as you can see, the easiest way is probably just to stand outside of my fishbowl office and see what I'm up to. <laughs> um, but for those who aren't here in the building, uh, the best way to find me is on the website of the American Enterprise Institute um, or on the website of the, the Gray Center. It's uh, administrativestate.gmu.edu. Uh, I am on Twitter. I'm not giving out the Twitter handle because, uh, as you said a moment ago, people are not always their best when they are pundits. Uh, and, uh, and the same goes for me. But uh, no, if they want to find me, it's Adam J. White, uh, D.C. Perfect. Adam, thank you so much for being Thanks to all of our listeners, viewers out there for uh, everything that you do to, sh to uh, you know, share these podcasts, spread the word about the work of Save Our States, defending our constitutional structure, particularly when it comes to the Electoral College, the integrity of presidential elections. Thanks for what you do. We'll be back again next week.